Over the course of the past 18 months, the government has spent a lot of money to get the UK through the COVID-19 pandemic. But Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, has made clear repeatedly that the bills we've racked up during this period will soon be coming due. This puts into sharper relief some of the debates around tax which have been rumbling on in the background for several years. Reforms to capital gains tax, inheritance tax and pensions tax relief are often discussed. But might they finally become reality? I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of uh, FT Advisor, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. With me to discuss lots of tax-based issues is Bill Dodwell, tax director of the Office of Tax Simplification, which has recently reviewed both CGT and IHT on behalf of the Treasury. Hello, Bill. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. No, no, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, One of the proposals you've made most recently is that the beginning and end of the tax year should be moved either to the calendar year or to the beginning and end of uh, April. Um, for many advisors, for many of our listeners and our readers, the beginning and end of the tax year is the busiest time of uh, year for them. Why should they have to uh, go through that uh, over the Christmas period? Why is the, what are the advantages of, of that? Okay, well, firstly, we're working on this study at the moment. We have not produced a report and we've not yet made any recommendations. What we're looking at in this pretty short study is the two possibilities you say, moving the year end away from 5th April to 31st March, or alternatively 31st December. And in addition, we're looking at, so what would there be some other changes which wouldn't involve moving the tax year, which would help particular categories of people Uh, And we're particularly thinking there about making tax digital for income tax and the self-employed and landlords who will be affected by that from 2023. So it's sort of three three sets of um, arrangements there. I I think when you consider the tax year, you know, 5th April is obviously a weird anachronism. It dates back to when the Gregorian calendar changed and all that stuff. And for some reason, we managed to keep that as our individual tax year for uh, hundreds of years, which is sort of odd in many ways, despite the country adopting, of course, 31st March as the end of the country's financial accounting year. And that's the one used for corporation tax and many other taxes as well. But individuals are still stuck with 5th of April. And the point of moving is is partly to just help people understand the tax year better. Um, I think if you said to everybody, well, the tax year is your calendar year, so it finishes on 31st December, that would just be a more intuitive uh, experience for millions and millions of people. The, you know, the other things that sort of go with that are that lots of other countries, um, particularly like the United States, Canada and most of Europe, uh, use 31st December. And that's important because we're now in a sort of much more global world than we were, you know, 30, 50 years ago. And what you get is exchange of information between tax authorities, which is important, and that's all done on a calendar year basis. You've also got people uh, potentially paying tax in two countries and getting relief in one for tax paid in another. That's so much easier if the the countries have got the same tax year to, to work out. It's not impossible to do it, but it it does transform that whole sort of process. So there are some broader advantages to considering 31st December. Ireland had the experience of moving away from 5th April to 31st December in 2002. And they were were required to do so. 
um, because they moved uh, into the Eurozone. And that was one of the requirements, that they all had a, a common budgeting process, you know, up to 31st December. So they needed to do it. And you know, they managed to achieve that. We in the UK, of course, haven't got a sort of similar imperative. Um, and so the question of whether we were to take that big step, I think, is, you know, it would be a really sort of interesting question for governments to consider. The much smaller step is 31st March. It's just five days and um, you know, yes, it would have a big systems implication, but it wouldn't have the same sort of overall government upheaval, if you like, of saying that, um, you know, all government accounting needed to change to a different year end. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's smaller, but it, it hasn't got quite as many advantages in the sense of that sort of international comparison mm-hmm. I, I was just covering. So why think about it? The, the real, the biggest driver is that, um, you know, digitization is applying across everything we do, and tax is obviously a big part of that. Making tax digital for income tax is coming in 2023, and this is going to require that self-employed individuals, those in small partnerships and residential landlords, um, have to keep uh, their accounting records digitally, and they're going to have to uh, upload data to HMRC on a quarterly basis. And it, we, you know, the, the principle is that it's just much easier to keep accounting records through to a calendar month. Mm. Um, it's a much more intuitive and obvious and straightforward way. And so the question is, should we change to make that process so much easier? And I think as well, there's a whole load of other reports. I mean, you, you know, a- anybody... Um, who is investing money, possibly has a, uh, a wealth manager or investing through a platform, they'll get reports from that. Again, they're naturally done on a calendar month basis. Uh, why wouldn't you, as, as mm. they say? And then somebody has to do a correction to pick up, you know, the 1st to the 5th of April on mm. top of all of that. So, you know, there'd be a broader ease if we were to move to 31st March, or as I say, 31st December. Sure. Uh, moving on to some of the more perhaps substantive tax policy discussions uh, that uh, you've um, published reports on recently. You recently published a report on capital gains tax at the request of the Chancellor, and one of your proposals was to bring it in line with income tax. Uh, that would lead to a significant rise in, in, in tax paid uh, subject uh, by those subject to CGT. Is that a side effect of, of the proposals, or is that something that you uh, you were aiming to achieve? Well, f- firstly, it's, it's not quite right to say that we propose that capital gains tax rates should be aligned with income tax. The instruction we received from the Chancellor to look at capital gains tax um, included, you know, the broad thing about simplifying administration and technical issues. And it also asked us to look at distortions in the system and whether, um, you know, overall policy objectives of the government were being met. And, you know, the, the question we really pose back to the Chancellor um, with some evidence is that if the Chancellor is concerned that, you know, the, the big difference in capital gains tax rate to income tax rates was meaning that um, people were, uh, where they had the opportunity, of course, uh, were seeking to receive their returns in capital gains form rather than income form, if the Chancellor is concerned about that, and thinks that's a big influence on the UK economy, then he's really got two choices. One is to align the rates, 
And the other is to look at the boundary, in other words, defining what is subject to capital gains tax and what is subject to income tax. And so we didn't give an answer to either of that. Uh, you know, we're, we're tax specialists at the Office of Tax Simplification, um, but it's not our job to reach those broad political and economic choices, but we pose that question to the Chancellor. Uh, and I think some people have sort of misread it. What we did say is that if the Chancellor was minded to align the rates, then there's a range of other things he would need to think about. You know, relief for inflation would be important. Making sure that there was a better relief for losses would be an important part of that. The Chancellor would also need to consider, would it drive more people to holding their you know, wealthier people naturally to hold their investments via a company rather than directly because there would be a difference between the personal income tax rates and you know, let's say the new aligned capital gains rates if that were to happen with the much lower corporation tax rates. Um, and, and the final thing very much for the Chancellor to think about is the so-called lock-in effect. And you know, that, that in, you know, that's an economic uh, point that basically says if you, you know, because capital gains tax is paid when you sell something, dispose of something, uh, and not just when it grows in value, but you continue to hold it, um, you've got a choice as to whether and when you choose to sell. And if the tax charge is too high, then there is some evidence that people tend to hang on to things longer rather than um, you know, make the sale and, and pay the tax. So that is, again, another sort of thing to be considered in all of that. Mm-hmm. This is uh, stuff related to the um, uplift on death and uh, that. Well, that was another, another aspect. I mean, there's a sort of, you know, one of the questions of the tax system is how neutral should it be? At the moment, uh, there is a sort of, penalty, if you want to put it like that, for an individual giving assets away during his or her lifetime, let's say to children and so on, um, because in many cases that can be that can trigger a capital gains tax liability for the individual on the disposal, even though they get their money for it, tax is still paid on, on a gift. And so many people in that circumstance may choose to hang on to the assets until they die, and then they're inherited by um, you know, their descendants, their children, in our example, at the market value for capital gains tax at days of death rather than um, at their sort of original cost to the, the person who's just died. And, you know, in some cases that can lead to a sort of you know, double advantage, if you like, uh, particularly where you're dealing with business assets or um, certain types of agricultural property. You can end up with no inheritance tax because of the uh, exemptions there, and the uh, the recipient gets that market value-based cost, so they can immediately sell the assets if they choose and essentially pay no tax whatsoever. And we drew attention to that because that seems to conflict with the policy aim, which is really to allow um, assets to pass from one generation to another uh, and continue to be held, not pass from one generation to another and then immediately be sold. Um, so we drew attention to that. Mm. And, and, and at the same time, we also thought that there should be neutrality on lifetime giving. So a broader form of gift relief would, during lifetime uh, would be worth considering as part of that. Mm. And, and your proposal for that particular policy was that it should be uh, rebased, uh, if that's the right phrase, to 
the original cost, or um, I think you set a cut-off date of uh, the year 2000? Uh, well, essentially, we, we said, if, if you're looking at this, then the asset should pass at the original you know, tax cost, base cost, to the, uh, the person. And as part of that, we suggested it's worth considering whether we should have a rebasing of all capital gains assets to, let's say, the year 2000. Currently, you know, there's a rebasing um, in the, to the 1980s. Um, and the point of that is really to partly to deal with the effect of inflation uh, and also to deal with the fact that, you know, there are cases where people simply don't have records, many cases of mm. that, and trying to find a sort of answer to all of that. So it's a rough and ready thing. And, you know, some people could reasonably criticize it because it would let some gains drop out of charge. But it does deal with that really important issue of record keeping, which is you know, a fundamental part of the tax system. And as I said, also deals with inflation, which as we all know was much, much higher in the 70s, 80s, 90s than it is uh, in this millennium. Mm. I suppose this, this discussion highlights whether or not uh, CGT and inheritance tax can be considered in isolation. You've Produced two reports on mm-hmm. one on IST, one on CGT, and mm-hmm. do you feel Actually, there were two reports on each of? Them. Oh yeah, that's true. Actually, there, there, there are two, there are four, yeah. four reports. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you feel that it's really possible to consider these two taxes separately? I think it would be. Uh, I mean, you know, clearly, capital gains tax and inheritance tax do have you know quite different policy aims and objectives. Yes, there is crossover, and it's worth thinking about it. But I think it, you know, it would be possible if a chancellor were so minded to make changes to one of the taxes, and, and potentially just at the same time consider some of those crossover issues, but not the other aspect of the other tax. Let's just say, mm. and trying to deal with two at the same time would be quite a significant policy challenge for everyone involved in all of that. Mm. Uh, with your report on IHT in, in 2019, you said it was too early to reach a conclusion on the residence nil rate band and mm. whether there could be potential simplification of trusts. Have you been able to uh, reach a conclusion or do any more work on this? We've not done any more work. The reason we gave that view on trusts was that HMRC were looking at the whole taxation of trusts and we felt that it wasn't sensible for us to look purely at the inheritance tax issues with trust whilst HMRC was looking at the whole lot. Now, they came out relatively recently to say that actually they concluded that, you know, there would be no broad changes in that area. But, uh, you know, it's not, we've not sought to reopen that or look at that. And I think, frankly, given HMRC have reached that conclusion with the government, it's probably not a, a fruitful area to look at. Um, the other one on you know, the residential nil rate band, I, I think it's fair to say that there are one or two you know, borderline uh, issues with uh, aspects of how it works um, and we're talking about how it works rather than the, the policy, of course, which some other pe- some people disagree with and, and they wrote to us about that. But we've not done any further work and you know, to be honest, I don't really see us doing any more work unless Every time um, there's a, a f- fiscal event, uh, it, people in the, the financial advice and the wider world mm. management industry get start to get very excited about the prospect of 
pensions uh, tax relief reform and it never really becomes a reality. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think that this is an area of tax policy which needs to be reformed? Pensions are obviously really important to millions and millions of us and we had the last really major reform took effect in 2006 as you know Uh, and since then we've seen various sort of changes to the system primarily to keep its overall cost under control. I think, you know, successive governments, whether from all sorts of um, different stripes, if you like, have made changes uh, to the system. Um, We at the OTS have not looked at uh, pensions. We made recommendations about one one aspect, which is uh, something that affects people who earn less than the personal allowance, so less than, you know, 12,570 at the moment. Um, where the the way in which their employer operates the pension scheme can mean that some people get um, a tax contribution from the exchequer and others don't. And and the issue is trying to find some means of ensuring that everybody is treated in a broadly similar manner. And the government picked that up, um, and of course other people have made the same point, and I believe is still looking at it, but we've not done any consideration of the, the broader system. Okay, so you don't have a so you, you haven't sort of come forward with any proposals about no how. no no not at all and I think anybody who would was was to look at pensions I mean there's a whole lot of aspects here it's not just tax um, you know there's all the financial implications because you know people are making financial investments they may not necessarily see that so you know it would a, a review of pensions I, I would have thought would need to pick up a whole range of Moving back to CGT, from the proposals that you've made, mm. such as reducing the annual exemption, abolishing uh, the business asset disposal relief and investors relief, you could easily come to the conclusion that maybe the OTS thinks not enough people are paying uh, CGT. Would that be a fair <laughs> that, That's not a point for us. Um, it, it, it never will be. Just, you know, rates in the sort of area like areas like that are, are very much choices to be made by the government. I think what we were concerned with, um, you know, if you take something small like investors relief, it was a relief um, announced and introduced about five years ago. All the work we did with a wide range of, um, you know, advisors and professional bodies and trade bodies and so on, it's used in scarcely any cases at all. And it doesn't seem to be making any contribution towards small innovative companies raising finance. And so, you know, given the tax system is complicated if you just have stuff sitting in it so that people need to think about it, we just said, why don't we get rid of it since there isn't any obvious sort of use case um, for it uh, that we could see anyway. Um, So that was the sort of background to that. Now, business asset disposal relief is a sort of different uh, thing. Obviously, the government has reformed that in recent times and i think you know where where we got to is to think well given the nature of the government's recent reforms uh is this actually more in tune with a, a retirement relief for individuals rather than a sort of broader you know multiple business investment relief and to the extent it, that it probably is more attuned to a retirement relief, you say, why don't you actually redo that? And that way you'd reduce some of the complexity of the, the quality.
qualifying rules and that sort of thing. So we thought that was the simplification angle from all of that. It wasn't necessarily going to reduce the number of people um, it would benefit at all, because I think the evidence shows that most people getting business asset disposal relief or its predecessor just got it on a sort of one time only. They built a business, they disposed of the business, sold it or liquidated or whatever as appropriate and just got the relief once rather than making multiple investments. Mm. I guess there's been a lot of discussion recently about the taxation of wealth uh, as opposed to income. You've seen, mm-hmm. you know, discussions about a wealth tax, for example, sure. or, you know, people or the form of, of CGT. I guess it's uh, that um, area of, um, you know, the taxation of wealth is um, uh, uh, seems to be a live one. Is that something that um, uh, the OTS is going to continue to? Uh, well, it, it's not our role to think about new taxes. Our, our role is to advise the government on simplifying the ones we've got. Um, and when we say simplifying, we don't mean abolish. We mean um, looking at aspects of the system, the, the taxes we've got. Those broader things about it, should we introduce a wealth tax, are, are not mm-hmm. stuff that we ever look at. And they're very much a matter um, for the government, advised by the Treasury and, and so on, to, to consider or take forward. So, yes, I've seen all the coverage about uh, a wealth tax. You know, there was some very interesting work done by some academics uh, with some support from others. Um, but I think the Chancellor's made it clear that he wasn't minded to introduce a wealth tax generally. But we at the OTS have certainly not looked at that area. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm sure it's going to continue to be uh, a live debate, and particularly um, that specifically, but also areas around uh, CGT and IHT and indeed Pensions Tax Relief, the debate which never disappears. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Bill, for your time. And thank you very much for listening. And tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.